Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. It's so good to be back. And I'm really excited for the topics we're going to be covering over the next little bit. I've been on the call with people who are donating monthly, and they've given me lots of topics that they'd like to cover, including today's topic, which is how do we practice secure attachment in relationships in real time? What does that look like in real relationships? And so for this conversation, I have employed the services of my resident expert, Kevin Hales, my husband. He's a marriage and family therapist. He is coming to us after a busy, busy work week. And I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, babe. So we are going to be talking about just kind of having a conversation about secure attachment. We're going to be talking about the different attachment styles, how you can begin practicing with a partner to start creating a more secure attachment in your home. And I'll just be asking questions as we go and kind of guiding this conversation. And we're just going to talk for a while until we feel like we've gotten a good hold on this topic. Does that sound okay? Sounds like a plan. Awesome. So one of the big questions I was asked in our weekly call was, can you practice secure attachment patterns in relationships with people who are insecurely attached? And how would you even get started? Um, I think that's a good question. Uh, I guess my knee-jerk response is to say yes, though I think that might change depending on, again, who that relationship is with you know uh but sure as a general rule of thumb i think that's i think it's safe to assume that you can practice secure attachment patterns in relationships with people who are insecurely attached i don't know what are what are your thoughts i think you can as well i think about us actually whenever i'm thinking about this because i feel like when we got into our relationship we were not neither of us securely attached Mm -hmm. And so at some point we began practicing different patterns, but I feel like some of the ingredients that were necessary is we had to become aware Mm -hmm. of our insecure patterns. Like you and I couldn't have worked through any of the things without recognizing like, Hey, I need time. I like on your end, you tended to be more avoidantly attached. You needed time to process your feelings, cool down, figure out what you actually wanted to communicate. I needed to learn how to sit with the discomfort of not being okay for a little bit, of being in conflict. I couldn't handle the discomfort of conflict. And so I would freak out, like my nervous system would freak out. So I had to learn to be okay with that. I had to learn how to communicate, like to recognize and communicate my emotions in a way that wasn't putting all the responsibility on you to know what I was feeling. Right. 
So I felt like there was some self-work that needed to happen almost like simultaneously. Like if we're too insecurely attached people, at least one of us needs to be becoming more aware of our patterns and learning to work with those and, and maybe communicate our needs better. Yeah. I mean, I guess now that I think about it, I, to a certain degree can be that securely attached person for a lot of my clients, mm-hmm. right? You know, because a lot of them will come in insecurely attached and not having good relationships, you know, with people in the past. And 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 it's interesting because sometimes <clears throat> I'll have women who have had nothing but bad relationships with men in the past, but they they specifically want to meet with a man to help repair that, to help I guess, see if that's, you know, maybe it's an experiment sometimes to see if, you know, that's always going to be be the case or not. And so, so, so I think part of how we practice secure attachment in those situations is by having a firm and comfortable grasp of who I am as a person and not getting wrapped up into the the dance the the cycle mm-hmm. with someone who maybe isn't as securely attached because in fact maybe maybe one way to talk about this is a securely attached individual and again we're making it sound very all or nothing here. and it's not and it's not but but a a securely attached person can when interacting with an insecurely attached person, they can both create an insecure cycle together. Mm-hmm. Or in other words, to put it another way, the insecure part of the securely attached person uh, can come to the forefront mm. and and take over. And, and now it's the insecurely attached part of them that's driving the car and no longer the securely attached. And maybe it's the securely attached part of themselves that's driving the car most of the time, which is why they would earn the label of being securely attached. But again, it doesn't mean that they never feel insecure. It doesn't mean that that, that part of them never comes to the forefront. Yeah. Well, and I love that you bring this up because I think that happens a lot of times, like when I've been talking with clients in the past and they've done a lot of work with a therapist and they've, you know, they felt like they've created secure attachments with themselves or maybe with a loved one, like a romantic partner, or maybe with their kids, but then they go home to their mom or their dad or their siblings. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a lot of confusion about why this like insecure part comes up. Mm -hmm. And I think I love how you went into internal family systems there the fact that we all have parts that we might have the secure part that we've worked on. And maybe that's how we operate most of our life. But maybe when we go back to the, you know, places where insecure attachment developed, or maybe when we're around somebody that we had a tumultuous relationship with before that insecure part can come up, or when we're around somebody who reminds us Mm -hmm. of those kinds of people, it can bring that up for us. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So one of the things that I wanted to cover is dealing with like big emotions, particularly when you have like that classic combination of a anxiously attached person and an avoidantly attached person. You've got your pursuer and you've got your withdrawer. We've talked about this in the past before, 
But when we're in conflict or even when we're not in conflict, but just one of us is having big feelings, how do we, how do we co-regulate? How do we like work in the relationship to connect with one another when we're having conflict or big feelings? Like what are some things we can do to make that a safer experience for people who maybe are in that dynamic where one of them is anxiously attached and the other one is avoidantly attached? Well, I think one of the first, you know, principles to abide by is, is just simply, simply slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, when the emotions are running high, it's easy for our thoughts and words to get out of control, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't just mean like in an argumentative way and saying things uh, that are hurtful or that we don't mean, I, I just mean you know, that's where our thoughts go. We, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think straight. And so, so I think anything we can do to slow down, take some deep breaths, right. Try to calm our, our nervous system. Uh, those are going to be some of the, the most important first steps mm-hmm. uh, to, to keep that cycle from spinning out of control. Yeah. Well, and I feel like people that tend to withdraw more, like maybe have the ability to do that a little bit better. What about somebody who is more anxiously attached that like really their nervous system gets really fried whenever they feel like they're in conflict or that someone doesn't like them? Well, believe it or not, avoidant people, withdrawers seem able to slow down better, but oftentimes they're not. Okay. They're, they, they've actually done studies where withdrawers uh, have just as high of a heart rate as, as a pursuer. They're just not showing it. Oh. And so, so the reality, in theory, yes, they should be able to slow down more easily. But rather than staying emotionally engaged, they're completely disengaging. And then that's just creating more anxiety in the pursuer. Yeah. So, yeah. So in theory, they, they might be able to slow down more easily, but it's not slowing down with the purpose of re-engaging. It's slowing down with the purpose of getting the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to be in this uncomfortable position anymore. That makes sense. So it's not like they're, because that's what a securely attached person would do is like, I need a break. I'm going to regulate myself and then we'll come back. Mm -hmm. And we'll re-engage and you take the breaks as often as you need to slow down. So that's what secure attachment would look like. Is that, am I hearing that right? Mm-hmm. Is recognizing like I'm starting to get emotionally fast. I'm starting to get out of control. And if I can't slow down here with you, then I'm going to take a break for a moment so I can slow down, take care of my feelings and my thoughts, like get those into a place where I feel, I feel regulated and come back and we're going to talk about that and co-regulate in our relationship. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing happening is an avoidant person feels just as crazy inside as an anxiously attached person does. But the anxiously attached person is almost like, no, stay close to me. But that freaks out the avoidant person because that feels like where the chaos is. The chaos is here with you and I need to get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. So they hightail it out of Dodge, but that, leaves the anxious person with their worst fear, which is the fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. 
So how do we work with that? So we slow down, but how do we slow down when we have this dynamic going on? Well, like you said earlier, we both have to have that awareness of the part that we play and and try to recognize it in the moment as much as possible. That's part of what allows us to slow slow down because slowing down is being able to see the bigger picture, mm-hmm. right? Um, you don't see the bigger picture when you're caught up in the moment. You know, it's like it's like people who get so caught up in the day-to-day things of just the frustrations or the unfairness or the other things like that. And I I think I, I watched a documentary once about astronauts and how their experiences in space have changed their lives. And and I think one of the overarching themes I often hear is as they're up there looking down on our globe and seeing the beautiful blue skies and the clouds and the the masses of land and all these things it gives them this wider perspective mm-hmm. it gives them this elevated perspective of wow what a beautiful gorgeous thing that we live on and suddenly a lot of those things that we're always whining about or complaining about or frustrated over suddenly it doesn't seem to matter as much mm-hmm. some suddenly it it doesn't carry as much weight and so to to a certain degree that's part of what's happening when we're caught up in that that cycle with each other you know we're easily emotionally triggered and reactive and responding in ways that really don't matter, don't really have anything to do with what's really happening, what's really at stake here. Yeah. You know, if I come in and you're angry at me for not taking out the trash, we're not actually arguing about the trash being taken out. we're, We're talking about a deeper emotional scenario and probably you not feeling heard or important or uh, valued because I'm not taking the trash out. And that's just one of many examples. And so, so that's the wider perspective. That's, that's what we have to learn to be able to take a step back from and, and go, well, well hold, hold on. What are we actually arguing about? What are we actually talking about? And so that requires us to slow down. It requires us to have that awareness of what I'm feeling, what you're feeling. And, and then we re-engage. Yeah. On a higher level, I guess you might say. So slowing down, I think, means slightly different things for the pursuer and the withdrawer. Yeah. But but with the, with the same outcome. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be trying things on, like we talk about on this mm-hmm. channel a lot, mm-hmm. like figuring out, like, what could I do that would help me to be able to slow down and hear myself in those situations, because what works for me is not going to be what works for you or what works for someone else early in this cycle, because I needed someone to hear me and I I needed to feel engaged. I would go in the bathroom and talk to myself in the mirror and cry to myself in the mirror and like, like almost like witness my emotions. It felt like I was less alone having myself in the mirror to talk to, but learning that it was okay for me to be by myself and to like deep breathe. And it was okay to like, um, put water on my face. That was another thing that I would do that kind of like calm my nervous system. And you would kind of like disengage for a bit to bring it down 
until you felt like you could think about it again in a less emotional state. Um, It also helped knowing that we agreed to come back and talk about it. Like that was one of the things that allowed me to slow down was our agreement that we would take a break, but then we would come back and that we promised to do that. And every time that would happen, it built the trust that that actually would happen to the point that my nervous system was able to like calm down when things happened. If, if we took a break, I knew we're going to talk about this. What times of the marriage are you thinking of? Like early in the marriage. Really? Yeah. I'm Cause I'm thinking that that took years to get to that point. It did take years to get to a place where it worked well, but I mean, I'm talking about in our tiny little basement apartment at BYU. I remember us having some of these first discussions where we waited until we were not in the middle of the argument, probably at the prompting of our professors, because we were learning about marriage, family, and human development, but sitting down and figuring out, like, why do you go away when we're having conflict? And why, why do I sit outside the door wanting you to come out and talk about it? Why do I get so crazy? And figuring out what our needs were there and learning to communicate, like, I, I need a break, but I'm going to come back. And I need you to leave me alone while I have the break, because otherwise it just keeps me in this, this cycle. But yeah, we were having some of those discussions in our tiny little basement apartment at BYU. Hmm. Yeah, because I I thought I remember a lot of situations where we didn't come back and resolve things or work through things. Because uh, I remember either outwardly or inwardly being very judgmental of you and kind of think, you know, like when you would start to cry or get emotional, I would basically say, geez, you're a freaking basket case. And once you've gotten your crap together, we'll, you know, maybe we'll come back and talk then, you know, so it was because I was the quote unquote calmer one and not so emotional. I, and I think a lot of people tend to view the emotional person as the more out of control one, the Mm -hmm. one that needs to get their crap together, that needs to, you know, straighten up and fly right. And so, so there's, there's, I think there was definitely a judgmental part and, and I, and I, and I thought I remember you saying at times that, you know, we didn't resolve things or I wouldn't come back and talk to you. And so, oh yeah. It definitely was a pattern that we had to practice for years before mm-hmm. I felt completely comfortable that you, if you took a break, we're going to come back Right. because your knee jerk reaction was to run away and then sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. And my knee jerk reaction was to like, try to shake you and get you to talk to me until like, I felt like we were okay, which didn't mean that we resolved the issue. A lot of time it was just, I think sometimes you'd just be like, we're fine. We're good. Mm-hmm. We're okay. Just so I would calm down, but we didn't actually address what was going on underneath. So what I'm hearing is learning to slow down. So really listening to yourself, like, what do I need in that moment? How can I provide that to myself? What can we negotiate together that will help us both feel like we can calm down in that moment? Does deep breathing work for me? Does some cold water or some warm water work for me? Does going out for a walk work for me? And then coming back, what would be the next step after slowing down? Well, I think the next step is is having that awareness of what I'm feeling emotionally, what you might be feeling. So an emotional awareness. 
okay. I, think, I think would be the next step because you can't have that emotional awareness if you're in a fight or flight state of mind. Yeah. So you slow down so that you can actually get to a place where you're cognizant again. What would you say to someone who really is out of touch with their emotions or doesn't really know what they're feeling? How do you start practicing emotional awareness? Well, I mean, one of the the most impactful books I read was Living Like You Mean It. And I've often referred to that as kind of like an emotions 101 book. That was, I guess, the book that really helped me better understand emotion in general and my emotions in particular. Um, and it's it's just a really great book. It helps, you know, walk you through you know, what emotions are, where we feel them in our bodies, um, and so forth. And so having that awareness then allows you to better understand someone else's emotions. Uh, and yeah. And so, so that that's, that's the emotional awareness that I would say a lot of people are often lacking. Yeah. That book was really helpful for me too, because it goes through the like six main emotions and it has you recall a time when you felt that. Um, and does it have somebody observe you as well? No, that was, that was just the way we did it. Okay. So, yeah. I'm like, I don't know if they recommended that or that's just how we did it. Yeah. No, it was, it was just, it was, it's just an exercise that you do with yourself, but I was reading it. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to, to do that with you. Yeah. So I remember you would revisit a time when you felt fear and just paying attention to your physically physiological responses. Like mm -hmm. what does your heart do? What do your hands do? What does your face do? Like, how do you feel in your body? Right. And just learning to be able to like get good at, or just like maybe have that first understanding of this is what fear feels like in my body. This is what happiness feels like in my body. This is what sadness feels like. This is what anger feels like. That was a huge one for me. And then for me, what I did is I started actually setting times on my phone to stop and pay attention to, did I feel any of those things in my body so that I could learn the language of the emotions in my body more clearly? So those were some of the things that I started to do. And it took years to master that mm -hmm. until in the moment I could be like, I feel angry. That's mm -hmm. what I feel right now. Instead of being like, hold up, I'm going to go sit with myself for 30 minutes and I will come back and I might have an answer for you which is how it started, which is I feel something and it's big. And then you would slow down. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'd come up with, oh, I feel angry. And sometimes I'd just come up with, I feel bad. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I feel bad, but I feel bad. And as I would get curious with it, sometimes it'd take a few days or a few weeks to be like, oh, actually I felt resentment or I felt at first it was just those six emotions that they talk about in living like you mean it. It was anger, sadness, love, happiness, fear. What's the other one? Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. That's right. So learning how to like even just recognize recognize those families of emotions was really helpful. And then from there, it's blossomed into, I'm not angry. I'm resentful. Mm -hmm. I'm not angry. I'm frustrated right now. I'm enraged. There have been times that anger doesn't cover it. I'm absolutely enraged. Um, so being able to like just like distinguish between those for myself has allowed me to communicate better to you, to our kids, to my friends, to my family, what I need, what I'm feeling and, and what the actual problem is mm -hmm. instead of just, Oh, you didn't take out the trash. Right. Yeah. 
And then after that, so, okay, we've taken a break. We've gotten still and quiet with ourselves. We've given ourselves permission to sit with the discomfort of the fact that we're not okay. Sit with those feelings, figure out what's going on for us. Now we have to communicate that to one another. And I feel like this can get kind of touchy when we're used to either totally avoiding talking about our feelings or we overshare our feelings or we don't even know what we're feeling and we aren't allowed to have feelings. We just want to hear the other person's. How do we navigate having feelings, having needs and sharing those with each other? How can we create a safe atmosphere to do that? Well, that's a complex answer to a complex question because there's of course no simple easy answer to that um like a lot of things there's a lot of factors that play into that yeah i guess a big part of it is normalizing uh the experiences that we're both having mm-hmm. and again that can be hard to do when we feel like mm, i myself or you you know shouldn't be feeling something and 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 that's one of the things the book covers is that our emotions are not good or bad. They are just neutral mm-hmm. that everybody experiences emotion and we don't make up the emotions that we're feeling, you know, uh, if we're feeling something, then we're feeling it. And, and oftentimes what we try to do is dismiss or we judge what we're feeling. And then that just, complicates the whole process sometimes you'll hear um some therapists talk about a bottom-up versus a top-down approach so the way i i have always envisioned that is if it's a if it's a top-down approach that's what i think most of us are often taking when it comes to our emotions so the top-down approach starts in your head and it goes down to the proverbial uh heart of our emotions um technically you know all this happens in our head but uh we we often refer to the heart as kind of you know our emotions and so a top-down approach means we start in our head and we go down towards our emotions so if i'm feeling i don't know sad about something then our brain we start at the top our brain and our brain's like (laughs) Well, why am I feeling sad? That's stupid. That's ridiculous. Well, I'm just uh, that that doesn't even make any sense. There's nothing to be sad about. I just need to be positive. I just need to get over this. And and so the top-down approach basically means that our brain, our head, the cognitive, logical part of our head is judging our emotion. And it's trying to determine if if our emotion is even appropriate. You know, and maybe in that case, you know, if I'm feeling sad and it doesn't make sense or I don't see any logical reason for it, then again, our, our head is is judging us and trying to dismiss the emotion. Basically, it's trying to say, oh, well, I shouldn't be feeling that. But again, you're not making this up. Your mm-hmm. your body is feeling sad. And so therefore, we need to make space for that. And And so that's what the bottom-up approach is basically doing. It, it starts at your heart. It starts at the emotion. And it's, and it's working its way up through our head. And so I'm feeling sad. And so instead of being judgmental about that, which is the top-down approach, the bottom-up approach is like, okay, so I'm feeling sad. You know, where am I feeling that in my body? And now I'm going up through my head and why might I be feeling sad? 
And maybe, you know, I can figure that out because, because the bottom up approach allows us to be curious and curiosity cannot coexist with judgment. Mm -hmm. And so the bottom up approach allows us to be curious and we can explore that and go, well, why am I feeling sad? And maybe you can figure out why you're feeling sad, but guess what? Even if you can't figure out why you're feeling sad, you're still not dismissing the sadness. Mm -hmm. You're still making space for it. You're still validating the sadness, even though you don't understand it and you don't maybe have a good reason for why you're feeling sad. And, and because we can validate the emotion, because we can normalize that, um, then that allows the emotion to process itself through our body and it no longer, you know, holds us back and no, no longer weighs us down. So coming back to your original question, then that's where a lot of that starts. If I am being judgmental of your emotion, then we're not going to get anywhere because, because yeah. I'm sitting there judging your emotion or vice versa. And it's hard to progress. It's hard to have a, a, a sensitive conversation about emotions, about how we interpreted and saw and experienced things if we're judging each other. Or- yeah. Well, and I find, I don't know if you find this too. I find that a lot of the time when I get into judgment, it's because I feel like their emotion or their experience means something about me. Mm-hmm. When I can get out of that and I can be like, this emotion is like, it's theirs. Like, and it it's valid whether or not like the way they experienced it is the way I intended it or the way I experienced it that we can have two completely different realities mm-hmm. and that that's okay. Right. So the way they experienced it is valid. Their needs are valid and it, it doesn't like, it doesn't have to elicit a shame response in me. And if it does, I can take care of it. Like mm-hmm. I can recognize that shame response and, and take care of that. Right. So we slow down, we get curious about our own emotions first learn how to label them and talk about them. And then we communicate them in an atmosphere where people remain curious. Mm -hmm. If you're doing this for the first time, how might you set the stage for this before the next big emotional thing happens? What kind of conversation might you need to have or planning might you need to have before this happens? Your other question was, how do you do this before the next emotional thing happens? And what that made me think of is how people are often hesitant to discuss sensitive things when things are calmer and better because they're afraid they'll fall right back into an argument and then Mm. things will be soured again. And, but that's, that's the best time to try to have those conversations so that we can prevent that from happening again. But again, we have to be willing to, to engage uh, on that level. Otherwise, if we're not, then the next time we do try to talk about this or bring it up, it'll be in the middle of an argument and that's never going to end. Well. No, and we're both going to be in fight, flight, freezer, fall on, right. and we're, we're not going to have our problem solving hats on. Right. So we're not going to come up with good solutions. Right. So, yeah, so, so we need to be willing to, to talk about and work through and plan uh, for these things when things are calmer. And, and of course, if it's, 
feels like it's going to spiral out of control again, then we can slow down, we can stop and we can come back to it again. So, but I guess to your, your bigger question of like how to create that environment, how to have these conversations, I, I actually just remembered one of the analogies I use and uh, I'm kind of proud. This is my own little creation. And, and I, share I, it. well, I can't even remember if I've shared it on here. I, I feel like maybe I have shared it on one of our past episodes, but it's probably worth repeating uh, because it's for me, <clears throat> it's the best metaphor, you know, for how to go about the communication process. And, and it's a, it's a Frisbee analogy. Mm. Does it sound yes, familiar? I've heard it. I don't know if you have shared it on the podcast okay. before. Share it. So, well, if I have, it'll be review for, for anyone else that's heard it before, but basically going along with this, this metaphor, there's, there's three main parts to the whole communication process. There's uh, my skill level uh, as a Frisbee thrower. There's your skill level. And then there are the external factors. Okay. So part one, what is my skill level at throwing a Frisbee or in other words, communicating? Okay. How good of a Frisbee thrower am I? How skilled am I? How much have I practiced, practiced over the years? And, 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 you know, I, I remember as a kid trying to throw a Frisbee and it would always fly off in weird directions or straight Mm -hmm. into the ground. And, as I've gotten older and as I've practiced more and as I've developed my skills as a, as a Frisbee thrower, I, I feel pretty good, you know, in my skill level. And, and I would say most of the time I can throw a pretty good throw, but there is no such thing as a perfect Frisbee thrower or, or a perfect communicator for that matter. And, and part of why I emphasize that is because we oftentimes get hung up on trying to say the quote unquote right words mm-hmm. to someone else. We, we, we often talk about that. Like, Oh, I don't know. What's the right thing to say here? Or what's the right way to say this? And, and we have to get away again from that all or nothing thinking. We have to get away from that binary approach to everything in life, really. But in this particular case, communication, there is no, right way to say something or in how to say something. Are there better, healthier ways of saying something without a doubt? You know, you can, you know, instead of saying, Hey, you're an asshole, which is obviously going to elicit, you know, a strong defensive, angry response from someone else. We can, you know, we can try to be careful and say, Hey, you know, earlier, you know, when you acted this way or you, you responded this way, it, it was kind of hurtful or I felt kind of hurt or I felt neglected or I felt unimportant. You know, the, those, those are softer, gentler ways of trying to communicate something. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the earlier example is just, you know, an, a, just an, an in your face, very aggressive uh, uh, statement. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess to use the Frisbee analogy, it would be like taking the Frisbee up, you know, one foot away from someone and throwing it in their face. You know, that's like. <laughs> you delivered it. All right. You delivered your message and it was very forceful, you know, so. Uh, but but uh, but what is my skill level? You know, how how well have I tried to develop my skills as a communicator? And and that's something that takes a lifetime of practice. It's it's not something that comes easily. And, um, 
But again, there is no perfect frisbee throw. There's always going to be, uh, you know, your your throw will sometimes go off in a weird direction. Sometimes it didn't go in the direction you wanted. Sometimes it wasn't going towards the person you meant it to and so forth. Sometimes you throw it carelessly, even if you're usually a very precise sure. thrower. Right. Sometimes you're tired. Right, right. So what what is my skill level? Uh, factor number two, what is the skill level of the receiver? Okay. What is the skill level of the receiver of, of my message? So, uh, and, and I would, I would assume all of us have had times where maybe somebody is trying to say something or they're trying to communicate something to us and we can tell that, you know, maybe they meant to say something or maybe they were trying to, you know, imply another thing. And, and even though their delivery wasn't super great, and even though their, you know, their Frisbee throw, you know, uh, wasn't perfect, we could still go meet the message for where it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's, you know, again, if you're the receiver, if you're on the receiving end of a Frisbee throw, that throw isn't always going to be perfect. And that's part of what I think makes Frisbee throwing kind of enjoyable is, you know, it's kind of a game, you know, you're sometimes you have to go run and meet the Frisbee and you don't, it's not always going to fly straight to some, uh, straight to you, but sometimes it does. And, uh, and when it does, you, you try to catch it, but, but what is your skill level as a receiver? You know, what is your skill level as a listener, as a, a hearer of someone's message? Um, are you easily triggered? Are you easily offended? Are you easily reactive? Um, are, are you, do you interrupt? Do you have to get in, you know, your own words and you, you, you struggle to let the other person express themselves, you know, um, you know, we've, we've thrown the frisbee with our kids off and on over the years and, and they're not always the greatest, you know, catchers, you know, sometimes a frisbee will hit your kid in the face, you know, sometimes they're trying to catch it you know, and it bounces off their chest, or sometimes they're trying to do that, you know, slap their hands together, you know, catch where they're trying to cap, you know, catch it in between their hands and, and they're not fast enough or it goes through their hands or, you know, whatever the example, or, or they just, you know, sometimes it's hard to predict which way the first piece is going to go, you know, cause if it goes high up in the air, you know, sometimes it doubles back, sometimes it curves off to the side, but the more you play and the more you familiar you become with the direction of frisbee goes, the more likely you are to be able to meet it there. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think I've always liked that, that idea because we're not always going to say the right thing or the perfect thing, or we're not always going to say it in the right way. And so that is our part as the receiver is to meet the message there. Mm -hmm. It's to try, you know, what were the intentions behind this message? You know, and you know, if I know my partner or this person talking to me, where do I think they're going with this? Are they trying to be mean? Are they trying to be cruel in their words? Or, or you know, maybe they're trying to say something else, but it's just not coming out very well. Mm -hmm. And so that's the skill level we need to need to uh, develop as as a listener is is trying to meet that message there trying to to run and catch their communication frisbee yeah what are the third factors the third factors are the ones we can't control they're the external factors so uh maybe it's a windy day when we're throwing that frisbee around and if that's the case whoo, watch out you know you never know which way that that frisbee is going to go 
maybe the sun is right in your face, mm-hmm. right? There's times where I've played where I'm looking away from the sun and the view is great. It's easy to throw that frisbee, but the person trying to catch it, ooh, mm-hmm. you know, very, very difficult circumstances. Um, I remember one time we were throwing frisbee with friends and we had been playing for a long time and I, I stubbed my toe really bad. And so what did that do? It, it, it inhibited my ability to run and go meet the, the frisbee as effectively as I, as I was before. And, you know, sometimes you're just tired, you know, and you're just don't have the energy to go run and meet that frisbee. So, so the external factors uh, are things we always have to keep in mind. You know, sometimes you'll hear the acronym HALT, you know, when it comes to conflict, you know, if you're hungry or angry or uh, what's the L stamp? I don't know. I just had that thought too. I was like, I know what the T is. It's tired. Yeah. Tired would be the T and I don't know, maybe L is if you're being a loser, don't (laughs) (laughs) hungry, angry, loser, tired. Yeah. No, I don't remember, but, but, but the idea is, you know, um, we, we need to be careful about when we engage, you know, I, I think we don't argue nearly as much as we did in the past, but I, I feel like most of our arguments would occur late at night. Late at night when we are exhausted. Yeah, we're we're exhausted. It's it's been a long day. We've, you know, had a long day of work or, you know, kids or or who knows. And so so being tired was always a big one for us. Uh you definitely have a tendency to get hangry. I know? get so hangry. And and I don't, you know, interestingly enough, but but yeah, so if you're hungry, that that could be a factor, you know, maybe your blood sugar's low or whatever. Or, you know, in this case, if you're angry, but I mean, it's, it's not so much about being angry. It's about, you know, not being aware of your emotions and relatively in control of them. And I say relatively, because sometimes you're feeling what you're feeling and you you need to feel that. And so again, that would be one of those situations. Maybe we need to just take a break or away but so the external factors yeah are all those things that we can't control you know maybe you had a horrible day at work maybe Mm -hmm. you got fired maybe you got chewed out for something maybe on the way to or from work you almost got hit by a car and uh, or someone cut you off or you got a call from the doctor and you've got health, you know, bad health news, you know, that you just got, you got a cancer diagnosis. I don't know. You know, it's, it, there's a number of different things. In fact, I was just talking to someone at work this morning and, and she had a cousin who just recently died, you know? And so, so she's trying to work, you know, having that news, you know, sitting in the back of her head, you know? So it's, there's, there's all these different factors that we cannot control. You can't control the wind. You can't control uh, necessarily the direction the sun is shining, but you can, you know, control, you know, if you're looking straight at it, maybe we both turn to the side so we can, you know, have the sun at our side rather than totally in our face. And, and so that's, that's the third factor. Mm -hmm. It's, it's those things that you can't control for. And, and therefore we need to keep that in mind. You know, if we are trying to have a conversation or an argument and, you know, maybe it's like, oh my gosh, it's one in the morning. Maybe we pick this up tomorrow. Ignore that stupid biblical advice of never letting the sun go down on your your anger or whatever. And so, yeah, maybe it's just super late or, hey, you know what? I've had a really long and hard day 
can we talk about this later? Yeah. Or can we talk about it tomorrow or whatever we need to do so that we are in a better state of mind? Yeah. I love that you bring that up because I was going to say something about the whole don't go to bed angry thing too, because again, when we learn to slow down and we learn to sit in the discomfort of being in conflict that we're not completely okay, but we like, we'll get there. It makes it easier for us to go to bed, get the rest we need. And that alone is a slow down period so that we can talk when we're fresh and, you know, we're emotionally stable. So because we have all these three different, you know, aspects, what I'm hearing is like any of those could affect the way the conversation goes. Right. Because think about how, how nervous we are to have conversations sometimes because we're, we're, we're often so wrapped up in trying to say the right thing. You know, how, how often have we said that to ourselves? Oh, I wish I knew what the right thing to say was here or Oh, if if I just said it this way instead, you know, we're we're always we're always thinking like there's again there's this magic recipe for how I need to say something and what the right words are to say, and that's why it's really just a waste of energy to worry too much about those things. Yes, try to say things as nicely and kindly as possible, but using the frisbee analogy we have to take into account all of the different factors. So even if I say all the right things in the right way and deliver that perfect Frisbee throw, there is no guarantee it's going to land at its destination. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee that the person is, in other words, going to hear the message I'm trying to send. There's no guarantee that they're going to interpret what I'm saying in the way I'm, I'm, I'm intending to. Mm-hmm. And that's why we can sometimes get so frustrated. You know, we, we, we think we've got the right thing to say. We think we figured out how to approach something and then it seems to all fall flat on its face. Mm-hmm. And then we get so angry and frustrated and irritated because it didn't work out the way I had planned. And so going back to your question about how to approach, you know, these conversations and how to resolve conflict in our relationships we have to make allowance for, again, the emotions that you and I are feeling and make allowance for people to hear and interpret things in the way they they are going to and not try to control the other person and how they hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to. So so if, if you're expressing sadness or hurt, you know, about something that I wasn't trying to make you sad or hurt about. Um, it's not about me. It's about recognizing how you heard it that way, or you 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 interpret it that way, or you you experienced it that way, and being okay with that mm-hmm. because it's not my job to control that. I'm trying to make allowance for the fact that, yeah, this was this is how you heard it, or this is how you experienced it, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that I somehow did something wrong. It doesn't mean that I somehow didn't deliver my message right. I threw that frisbee as well as I possibly could. You tried to catch it as well as you possibly could. And now, now we're trying to, you know, now we're having a slightly different conversation of maybe trying to validate and empathize and clear up any confusion that that happened. Yeah. Well, and I love too the idea that like, let's say I did throw the frisbee in a like the best that I could at that moment, mm-hmm. and it's received and it felt like the other person felt like your tone of voice was off Mm -hmm. and they said, Hey, like, 
I don't like the tone of voice you're using. Maybe you weren't aware of that tone of voice being able to be like, oh, I mean, I was just talking with someone who said, you know, we've grown so much. I can actually say to my husband now, I don't like it when you use that tone. Mm -hmm. And instead of him being like, what tone? What do you mean? Mm -hmm. He can stop and be like, oh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't intend to use that tone with you. Yeah. Well, it, it, one of the examples I'm sharing a lot recently was uh, something that happened, uh, I think, a couple months ago. Um, we were talking about something from our past mm-hmm. and we were, you know, uh, as we sometimes do, right. We, we, t- we were talking about the past. We were talking about, gosh, what if we had done this differently or what if we had decided to do this? And, and, and I think we all tend to do that. You know, we think about the past, we think about, you know, the different forks in the road that could have been taken. And, and I had made the comment to you uh, in that discussion about, how I wished I had pushed you harder to do something. Mm. And, and, you know, we, we wrapped up the discussion and, and then it was either the next day or a couple of days later, you came back to me and, um, and you approached me and you said, Hey, I had a question about, you know, our conversation the other day. What did you mean when you said you wished I had worked harder at something? And, and so, so, so this is a great example of, uh, oh, and, and as a quick aside, that's something I'm always reminding my clients about too, is nobody has a perfect memory. Okay. And this is where a lot of conflict happens is we think we remember something more accurately than the other person. Mm-hmm. And as long as we continue to dig in our heels, you know, that our, my memory is more accurate than yours, we're going to continue to get, you know, stuck in these conflict cycles. So in this example, you said, hey, what did you mean when you said I, you wished I had worked harder at blank? And so immediately I'm like, well, that's interesting. I don't remember saying that. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of took a moment and, and said to myself, but maybe I did. Mm-hmm. And because, again, my memory is not perfect, but, you know, neither is hers. And so, you know, maybe she didn't hear me correctly, or maybe that's how she interpreted it or experienced it. And so I think I remember saying something to the effect of, well, that's not what I remember saying to you. Uh, what I, what I remember saying to you was I wished I'd pushed you harder to do blank. And, uh, and so, so I, I think I explained that to you, but I, I, I hope, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, I hope I was also validating to the fact that maybe that's how I said it. And I just don't remember it. Mm -hmm. You were, you were very open about that. I remember this conversation. Right. And so, so, so I love that, that recent encounter of ours, because I think it shows a lot of different things. Number one, when we were originally talking about this subject, you didn't just immediately react and fire back at me, you know, saying, you know, what, you don't think I was working hard enough that, you know, blankety blank, you know, and, and you didn't, you know, start to defend yourself. You, you, you thought over this for a day and, and obviously you were, I think, concerned or bothered or irritated or, or just confused maybe by why I would say, I thought you should have worked harder at something. And so you came back and you, you asked that question, you know, hoping for some clarification. And, and I also 
just didn't react in a defensive way because mm-hmm. because a lot of people would react in a defensive way of like that's not what I said you know this is what I said and gosh why are you always assuming the worst you know mm-hmm. and 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 we could have gotten into another argument you know because of that and so um and and then that was me trying to um uh, validate again uh what you you heard or 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 experienced uh while at the same time you know not just saying okay you know all right that's what i said and and just caving in because because mm-hmm. i remember it differently uh but it doesn't mean my memory was the more accurate one mm-hmm. and as possible i did say it the way you remembered it but that's really beside the point the point is that's how you experienced it you know it, it impacted how you felt and i think we were able to clarify and and get to a better place because of that. Well, and I think it wasn't so much about the words that were said. Mm-hmm. It was for me, like I I had to sit with it. I, I don't even remember feeling that like ping mm-hmm. right in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's like it echoed in my mind later. Right. And the thing that I wasn't sure that you were trying to say, which is why I clarified, is I was worried that what you felt was that I hadn't done enough in my life that you somehow felt like I was lazy or which I don't feel that way about me, but it concerned me that you saw me that way. Right. Um, that I was somehow lazy or unmotivated or something. And so mm-hmm. talking with you, you actually even opened up. I don't know if you remember this. You said, you know, you know, what, what did that make you feel Mm. like? What feelings did that bring up for you when you thought that that's like, when you heard me say that, and then we got to talk about the feelings underneath the words. It wasn't about whether you pushed me hard, you wish you would push me harder or wish whether you wished I had worked harder at something. It was about the, the underlying fear I had that you saw me as fundamentally lazy or unmotivated. Mm -hmm. And you were able to clear that up right then. (laughs) And then that whole thing dissipated, right. if that makes sense. So right. yeah, it was no longer about the words because it's so very rarely is. It was about the feelings and the fears underneath. And because you had, both of us had allowed open space for, you know, I'm worried this could be what he means, but maybe it's not. And mm-hmm. you left the open space for, this is what I remember saying, but I could be wrong we left that uncertain, curious, open space where we weren't judgmental and it allowed us to drop down into those feelings that are underneath so many of the arguments and get curious about those and clarify those. And that's, I feel like what really continues to solidify a secure attachment between the two of us Mm -hmm. most of the time, because we still fall into old patterns sometimes, but most of the time we tend to be curious and open-minded and able to slow down and, and look for that win-win, which Mm -hmm. is really what we're after. We're, Mm -hmm. I I like how you said, I didn't just cave right? because I think so often, and and I'm worried that maybe people listening are hearing like conflict resolution is about appeasing the other person. And it's not what it's about. It's about both getting your needs met and getting my needs met and both of us feeling seen and heard at the end, we should feel closer Mm -hmm. or at least more understood Mm -hmm. than we did when we started the conversation. So the listeners can't see this, but as Terry has been 
talking about this and recalling that 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 encounter her eyes were tearing up what was coming up for you so just like the vulnerability mm-hmm. of worrying that you saw me in a negative light your mm-hmm. opinion matters a lot to me right um and that's part of secure attachment too that mm-hmm. you do care about what the other person thinks and feels um but you don't base your whole you know self-worth on that yeah. um i'm not completely detached from you we are you know interdependent mm-hmm. not codependent but being able to like open up cuz it's that's a soft squishy part to like make yourself vulnerable to see how another person like thinks or feels about you and then to be met with compassion mm-hmm. felt really good it felt really safe mm-hmm. it was a really tender moment mm-hmm. so i'm crying more as i talk about it thanks for bringing that up punk. <laughs> well i I, th- I thought this would be a good example though right because i mean even just your tears and the emotion that you're expressing right now would have made me extremely uncomfortable at the beginning of our marriage yeah any of your tears any emotion really for that matter um made me very uncomfortable and therefore it made me you know quick to withdraw and to move away from you mm-hmm. and um what didn't help that you were told that god was going to count all my tears and hold you accountable for them <laughs> that did not help yes and 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 it and it also didn't help that um you know i was a very emotionally immature person and 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 i fell into the the traditional thinking that some emotions were good and some were bad you know um traditionally we refer to our emotions as positive and negative emotions mm-hmm. and synonymous with the words positive and negative are good and bad mm-hmm. and so of course most of us want to feel the the quote unquote positive emotions and most of us don't want to feel the quote unquote negative emotions but someone said that the walls we build to keep out the the sadness and the fear and the anger are the same walls that keep out the joy and the love and and so you in other words you can't selectively numb Mm-mm. you need to be able to feel and make room for all the emotions because they're again they're not good or bad they're neutral <clears throat> and and so yeah it's uh it's something we've worked hard to create in our relationship with with each other and it's it's not perfect but but it's leaps and bounds ahead of where it was at the beginning Mm-hmm. And uh, and especially without religion, honestly, I mean that was one of the biggest roadblocks to having that safe and secure relationship with each other because we were constantly wringing our hands over the rightness and wrongness of certain emotions or how we're discussing things or or how we're feeling or any number of things or our wants and needs even mm-hmm. like where our wants and needs righteous or mm-hmm. unrighteous mm-hmm. yeah yeah we've come a long way mm-hmm. i like where we are yeah mm. so thanks thanks for sharing and opening up about that i yeah i just i think that's a good example a re- good recent example for us at least personally about how to resolve 
conflict or at least potential conflict, you know, conflict. And I think I've said this before, but again, it's worth repeating. And in fact, I'll, I'll say this a lot to my couples, you know, uh, sometimes it brings some comfort or at least understanding. Um, what I often tell my couples is that conflict is evidence that we care for one another deeply. We, again, we've often, you know, especially in religion, I think we've been raised to believe that conflict is a bad thing. It's evil. It's bad. It's a sin. Um, and in fact, uh, in Mormonism, it doesn't say, com- you know, uh, contention is of the devil, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a scripture in the book of Mormon. And so I'm sorry, but it's bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. conflict is, is a, is a, is an amazing opportunity to grow closer to someone else. The problem is the vast majority of us have never learned how to resolve conflict in a, in a healthy way. And so, and because we often don't resolve conflict in a healthy way, it leaves this bad taste in our mouth. And so then we, we, we develop this, you know, revulsion to conflict and anything related to it. And so most of us shy away from it and we run from it. We, we try to do anything, but resolve conflict and, and we're really missing out on golden opportunities to grow closer to one another. So conflict is not bad. It's, it's evidence that we care deeply for someone else. That's why we have conflict uh, uh, in our closest relationships. In fact, I illustrate it by saying the more important someone is to me, we're going to feel emotions proportional to that. And so the less important someone is, the less emotional I tend to be. Yeah. If someone on the street told me that they thought that I should work harder at something, I'm not going to care. They don't know me. Right. But you, if you feel like I'm insinuating that you're not a hard worker, that you're lazy or something, that's going to really hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then that's not what you meant at all. You just felt like you wished you had been more supportive earlier in our marriage with my desires to travel the world, to um, get a master's degree, to do all of these things, which I'm getting to do now. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, which was what the conversation was about. I don't know if you even remember that. Not really. And that's the interesting thing about, you know, conflict is we are rarely going to remember, you know, a lot of the details and a lot of the 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 minutia. Mm-hmm. What we often really, really remember is the emotional impact. Yeah. So yeah. Not just conflict, but, you know, emotional interactions with one another. I feel like there's been a lot of great information today. I feel like you've shared a lot. Thank you so much. You deal with this every single day with relationships. And I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with you know the listeners here, because this is something I think we all deal with, if not with our romantic partner, which I think most of us do. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as a conflict-free romantic relationship. But we probably deal with this with our kids, sometimes with our friends, probably with our family of origin. And I feel like these principles that we've talked about today um, can be useful across all kinds of adult relationships. Um, and even as, you know, the adult parent in a parent-child relationship as well. So please, as you're listening to this, um, if you have questions, if something wasn't clear, don't hesitate to send me a message on social media. 
or if you are one of the people coming to the live call, if you're a monthly donor and you're coming to the live call or you're on the the email list, the weekly email list, please um, send me questions, send me things that you want to hear more about, and we will work those into future episodes, as well as um, the Facebook group. I just put a message on the Facebook group because I start my master's degree in two weeks. And so I won't be posting as much on social media, but you will still be hearing from me every week with the episodes. We're going to kind of take this as we go for the foreseeable future. Uh, We're going to continue as we're going. And I'm going to have people like Kevin on the podcast, sharing their expertise, kind of lightening that um, research workload on my shoulders as we talk about topics that are important for all of us. So feel free to please send me those messages. And Kevin, thank you again. Mm -hmm for meeting with me and sharing your expertise at the end of a very long work week. I love you. Love you. All right. I'll see you guys on the call on Wednesday and we'll talk again next week.